You're listening to Coldo D. Messianic Congregation's weekly podcast. Our services are every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. For more information, like us on Facebook or visit our website at coldod.org. Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. And uh, I miss you all. Would love to be there today, but I'm quarantined uh, with COVID still. I love Christmas. I really missed it when living in Israel in the mid-90s. I didn't miss the merchandising and the gift-giving guilt, but I did miss the warmth of its spirit among the populace with songs, a lot of which, by the way, were written by Jews. Popular Christmas-themed songs, not the carols, of course. I miss the decorations, and since I was now a believer living in Israel, I miss the reminders to think about Yeshua's first coming. Now... I mainly remember celebrating Hanukkah growing up, lighting the Hanukkiah, that's the menorah for Hanukkah, with the blessings and the songs, playing the dreidel game, yay, with chocolate coins, the smell of potato latkes in the air, and getting increasingly bigger and better presents each night until the climactic eighth night. I remember learning more about the story at Hebrew school. But I also remember having a beautiful Christmas tree for several years as I was young, and even some stockings hung up by the fireplace. I remember visiting the school which my mother supervised and listening to the and joining in on the beautiful Christmas carols sung by a choir in the auditorium. I had no idea what or who they were singing about or we were singing about, but I did enjoy it. You see, my parents were from New York City. My father was Jewish, his parentage from Poland and Austria, and my mother was Catholic, her parentage from Ireland. She converted when she married my father so that we would be raised Jewish, whereas interfaith marriage among Jews was very difficult and very conflicting in those days. Today, somewhere around 60% or more Jews are married to non-Jews. My sister told me a story of our upbringing, which I didn't recall. One night, late in December, I woke her up and had her wait with me on the steps until our parents came in the front door with presents. See, there's no Santa Claus, I told her. From that point on, we only celebrated Hanukkah in our house. Now, we went to Hebrew school. We were bar and bat mitzvahed to Jewish overnight camps in the summer, which were great, to Israel after high school. My uh, Hanukkah and Passover at home, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in the synagogue. But we didn't keep a kosher home, nor were we Shomer Shemot, keepers of Sabbath. Our Judaism was one more of a peoplehood, belonging to an historic ancestral people with roots in the land of Israel, having relatives who were survivors of the Holocaust, really less a religious or a God-oriented one. Our suburban Philadelphia neighborhood was 90% Jewish, as was my high school of 2,000 students, where, by the way, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went while he was here for a season in the States. I do remember our cafeteria offering only matzah during Passover week. No lechem, no bread. But back to Jews and Christmas. According to Brandeis professor Jonathan uh, Sarnal, in the last 40 years, two specific groups among the Jewish people have brought back the tradition of bringing Christmas trees into the home, believe it or not. Russian-speaking Jews and intermarried couples. Christmas was banned as a religious holiday in the Soviet Union, but the tree remained a symbol of the New Year. As such, Russian-speaking Jewish immigrants continued to see the tree as a secular symbol of the winter. He says, lots of intermarried Jews, quote, find their non-Jewish spouses miss the Christmas tree and feel they can have a menorah and a tree as multiple symbols of the season. A 2017 Barna research survey of Jewish millennials showed that 42% celebrate Christmas, and a third had a Christmas tree at home. 
7 out of 10, actually 71%, intend to raise their children as Jewish. It's still very important to us and to them. Regarding Yeshua himself, 21% believe Jesus was, quote, God in human form who lived among people in the first century, unquote. And 28%, quote, see him as a rabbi or a spiritual leader, but not God. 34% said belief in Jesus as the Messiah was compatible with being Jewish, while two out of three Jews think that belief in Jesus is disqualifying. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, you're no longer Jewish, which we know the scriptures do not teach. Now, in the New Covenant, the Brit Hadashah, or the New Testament, as Christians refer to it, Matthew chapter 1 gives an opening claim, the beginning of the New Testament, an opening claim. And do you know what it is? It says, the book of the genealogy of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Ben David, Ben Abraham. Or in Hebrew, it would be translated like this. Sefer Todot Yeshua HaMashiach Ben David Ben Avraham. Wow! An opening claim that he is as Jewish as can be, fulfilling the, the promise of the Messiah to come from the lineage of David. And Romans 1.3 says, Concerning his son, he came into being from the seed of David according to the flesh. So the New Testament is clear. Yeshua, Jesus, was Jewish and he was the promised Messiah. Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, as Christians refer to it, the Old Testament, we see some different claims, some amazing claims, I should say. Now, let me ask you, what are you looking forward to right now? Whether short-term, like being with your family, or a hobby you have, or maybe better weather, or even a good meal or getting back to something you enjoy after an illness or healing? Or what about long-term? Certainly seeing your loved ones again after years of separation. We call this hope. H-O-P-E. We all need something to hope in, to look forward to. Well, God gave hope to His people Israel through promises. Promises made to them but also through them to the world regarding a coming Messiah. One who would end conflicts between nations and oppressive dictatorships, who would establish world peace under a just monarchy, he himself ruling. But none of this could be achieved before the most important mission was accomplished, delivering us all from our sins. In other words, an inward change and transformation before an outward one. Now, that's why the angel of Adonai told Yosef, Joseph, to call Mary or Miriam's son Yeshua. Name him Yeshua because he would, quote, save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1, 21. Wow. This name was not just a verb, but a person. In Genesis 49.18, Isaiah 62.11, Psalm 91.16, that's the Law of the Prophets and the Writings, Torah Navim Ketubim, this name Yeshua from Yasha, the, the verb to save or rescue or deliver, was to be a, would be a person. Now here, listen closely, here are a few of the major prophecies, the major predictions surrounding the Messiah's miraculous birth. We have the one I'm going to give you first is Zechariah, Zechariah, chapter 2. It's not one typically used in showing the prophecies of Yeshua's birth. It's in verses 14 and 15 in the TLV, which I'm reading, but it's verses 10 and 11 in, other tra in some translations, in Christian translations. Here's what it is. Listen closely. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Why? For behold... I am coming, and I will live among you, says, declares the Lord. Wow! He'll dwell among us, live among us. In that day, many nations will join themselves to the Lord, to Adonai, and will be his people, will be my people, God says, and I will dwell 
among you, says it again. Then you will know, this amazing phrase, then you will know that the Lord of hosts, Adonai Tzivaot, has sent me to you. Wow. That phrase is used four times in Zechariah. I love it when I remember first discovering it. So amazing. Who's saying, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Who's speaking? I believe it's Yeshua. I believe it's the Messiah. He's speaking. He's saying, you'll know. Oh, my people, you'll know. It's chapter 2, 13 and 15, chapter 4, verse 9, and chapter 6, verse 15. Three times that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Wow, what a promise. So Yeshua, he says, I'll dwell among you. Well, in John 1, 14, what does he say? It says that the word in the beginning was the word, John 1, 1, and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, who is this word? Well, in the Hebrew, it's logos in the Greek, but in the Hebrew, it would be devar. As Pastor Richard Wormbrandt translates, used to translate it, it's the real thing, davar, the word, the real thing. And the word was with God and he was God and, and he, with God in the beginning, all things were made through him and apart from him, nothing was made that came into being. Oh my goodness. Well, down in verse 14 of John 1, it says this, and the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt, lived among us. The word became flesh. That's the Messiah's coming God in the flesh coming to dwell with us. In verse 15, when he says that the nations, he says in Zechariah 2.15, or again might be 2.11 in your translation, in that day many nations will join themselves to the Lord and they will be my people and I'll dwell among them. Well, this forecasts the prophecy of Romans 11.17, which says that the Gentiles, the nations, some of the nations were broken off. You being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker of the root of the olive tree with its richness. Wild branches grafted into the natural branches of the Jewish olive tree. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul writes that you were, you were, you as Gentiles were separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you were once, you who were far off, you're now brought near by the blood of the Messiah. What a promise. He's our shalom. So God's prophecy of Yeshua, of the Messiah would be, he would bring the Gentiles into union with the Jewish people who were believers, and those believers would be one in Messiah and have the hope participate in the promises together. The second prophecy I want to give you of the three is Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Micah 5, verse 1. Again, it might be verse 2 in your translation. But you, Bethlehem, you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, least among the clans of Judah, from you, will come out to me, God says, one to be ruler in Israel, one whose goings forth are from of old, from days of eternity. Wow. The bread of life born in the house of bread. You see, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, means house of bread. He wouldn't be born in London, England, of, the, of King Edward. He would be born of David's dynasty, uh, in the house of David, the city of David, I should say, Bethlehem, Beth, Beth, the house of bread. And this Messiah, his goings forth were from of old, Mekedem, from the days of eternity, Mime Olam. We refer to these goings forth really as theophanies. Many times in the scripture where God appeared to human beings in a pre incarnate form. And there are many of these instances which I've taught before. So this was, but this, this case would be different. He would be born in the flesh and become be the one who would be eventually ruler in Israel. And, and uh, he's prophesied here in Micah 5, one. I remember when my heart sinking, when I was living in Israel in the mid nineties, and we saw the news of the Oslo Accords that Bethlehem went back under Palestinian control and felt 
my heart sink because this was the birthplace of Yeshua. You know, it wasn't long after that that many poor Arab Christians had to leave that area and would and were, were filing out of that area because they wouldn't have freedom to practice their Christian faith any longer under the Muslim control. So uh, this is the city of David. Now, the third prophecy is, is Isaiah chapter 8. This one is amazing as well, and even maybe more so. Micah chapter, uh, Isaiah rather, chapter 8, verses 23 through chapter, the beginning of chapter 9. And again, it might be a little differently. It might start in chapter 9, verse 1 in your translation. What does it say? Well, in 823, it says that uh, there's no gloom to her. It was in anguish. And he says, but in the future, he will bring glory by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. This verse, this passage is referenced, this verse in Micah, in Matthew, in the New Testament, in Matthew 4, verses 14 through 16. The Messiah, God, will bring his glory beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the nations. Well, today, this area is, is Jewish in the Canaret, the, where the Sea of Galilee is in that area, but then it was populated by non-Jews. And then in verse 1 of chapter 9, the people walking in darkness will see a great light. A great light. Upon those dwelling in the land of the shadow of death, light will shine. Down to verse 5 or 6, depending on your translation. For unto us, for to us, a child is born. A son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulder. What will his name be called? His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, My Father of Eternity or Everlasting Father, and then Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and shalom, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it through justice and righteousness from now until forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God's passionate about it. It will happen. It will happen. Wow. Darkness, death, shadow of death, but the great light will come. The light will come. Well, who is this? It says his name is for to us, to us, the Jewish people, a child is born, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called, it's in the Hebrew, Pele Yoetz El Gabor Avi Ad and Sar Shalom, wonderful counselor. He he delivers he, he deliberately diverges rather from the norm. The mighty God, he's the God man, El Gabor, the God of overpowering strength. He's the father of eternity. I like to translate it, my father forever, Avi Ad. We we have the spirit that crying in our hearts, Abba, Father, in Galatians 4, 6, and Romans 8, 15, after we trust in Yeshua, after we become born again. And then he's Sar Shalom, the ruler of peace, the ruler of wholeness, health, welfare. You know, you say, well, is Yeshua, did Yeshua really, when he was here, claim to be God? He sure did. In John chapter 10, verse uh, 30, he said, my father uh, I rather and the Father are one. We're one. Someone might say, "Well, he just did he just mean we have the same purpose, the same goal?" No, no, no. He said, "I and the Father are one." I'm looking at it here in my text, and after this, they picked up stones to stone him. Uh, the le- the leaders, they they said, he said, "I've shown you w- many good works in the Father. Which of these are you going to stone me?" And they said, "We're going to stone you not for a good work, but." For blasphemy, though you are a man, you make yourself God. So they understood what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the Messiah who is God. And down further, it, it, it continues that because he says, I say, or he sent me into or you say, speak blasphemy, you say, because I said, I am Ben Elohim. He was the son of God. Same thing. He is God. And they believed, they understood that. Matter of fact, Yeshua said in John 14, 9, he said, He who has seen me has seen who? The Father. 
has seen the Father, John 14, 9. Or remember in 858 of John, earlier in the, when they were going to stone him, because, when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was. Clearly, looking back at Exodus 3.14, where God proclaimed to Moses at the burning bush, Ehyeh, Asher Ehyeh, I will be who I will be. Wow, wow, wow. Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, he was God in the flesh. The Messiah was God in the flesh. Oh, these are prophecies of his birth, where he'd be born, when he'd be born. Well, that's the prophecy in Daniel, which we don't have time to look into, Daniel 9. But he would be born. Isaiah 7:14 says of the virgin, Ha-Alma, not just a virgin, the virgin, a specific one, a miraculous, supernatural birth. Seven times that word is used in Scripture of the Alma. It's always a, not a, just, not only a young woman, but a virgin. And this would be a, an oath, a sign. And what would his name be called there in Isaiah 7:14? Emmanuel. God is with us. Or really, same thing, but with us is God. It's, he's God. These are prophecies of Messiah's miraculous birth. And as we come to Christmas time, what a time to remember his, the prophecies promised to the Jewish people because God was fulfilling his word to us. He came to his own in John 1. He's, he, these promises, but came to the Jewish people to be a light to the world. I am the light of the world, Yeshua said. He wanted the Gentiles to come in as well, to participate with the Jewish people in the promise that God has made for knowing salvation. How about you today? Have you met Messiah? Have you trusted Yeshua? Have you met, had that encounter with the living God to know him through Yeshua? Call upon him. Say, Lord God, I, want, I need to know, I thank you for rescuing me, that you came to rescue me from my sins. That was the initial promise. His purpose, he came to rescue his people from their sins in Matthew one twenty one. Lord, I need you. I want to be rescued, forgiven, and washed anew, and have this new encounter with you to know a Christmas with Messiah, Yeshua, in my heart. God bless you. I miss you all. We love you and can't wait to see you. Remember, next week we'll be there, this next Shabbat for sure, uh, by God's grace, and have a message on the new year, 2021. What some things we can anticipate. God bless you and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi, for such a great sermon, really, things that we can think about and apply to our lives so, so important what God has done for us and then what God is going to do with us going forward. So I want to sort of continue with what I started talking about last Shabbat, Saturday night at the Havdalah service. So I talked about uh, at that time something that um, happened, a man of God, I talked about Daniel, and let me just refresh a little bit and uh, basically tell you King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had gone in and overtaken Jerusalem. He had taken, had the vessels of the temple, God's temple, removed and brought back to Babylon. And he brought many captives back with him. It's known as the Babylonian captivity. And we talked about Daniel last week, but there were three others I want to talk about today, and their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And as with Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar gave them other names, and you may, some of you may be familiar with the other names. They're called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are three Hebrew um, children and they find themselves in Babylon. And so, you know, God lets us go to places that really are not godly places. Babylon was not a godly place. Um, and so Jewish people found themselves there. There are plenty of God, ungodly places in the world that God has us, but it doesn't exempt us from serving God. God's rules are still applicable to us today. And when Daniel came, he did a marvelous thing. He was able, through God, God interpreted 
not only told King Nebuchadnezzar his dream, but also interpreted it. And then the king recognized it. He said, wow, nobody touch any, anybody that is against God. So now in chapter 3, um, the king really does something that you'd consider just terrible. Right after he recognized that, he builds an image. And he says to everyone, when you hear music, you need to bow down to that image. And, of course, the three Jewish men that I'm talking about, they know God's rules and laws. Nobody has to tell them that. You're not allowed to bow down to an image. And the king made it especially uh, punitive for those that decided not to obey. He said, if you don't obey, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. It's very simple. You obey, hear the, hear the music. If you don't obey, you basically go to your death. So um, these three men made the decision that they were not going to abide by the king's rule. They trusted in God, and so they didn't. So it was reported to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember, King Nebuchadnezzar had promoted these people, had put them in responsible positions in Babylon. And so the king was enraged. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody enraged. I have. It's not a pleasant sight. Um, the king was really angry, very, very mad. Had them brought into him. And the rage doesn't seem to show forth in the next couple of verses. Basically, maybe he wasn't enraged at this moment after he had calmed down. But he said to him, hey, maybe you didn't understand. I, I built this image, and it's an image of gold. And when the music plays, you just have to bow down and worship the image. And so the three men looked at him, and they said, King, we, we don't have to answer you in this matter. We don't have to. We serve a God but we will answer you. We serve a God, and the God may decide to save us. He may. They knew in this human life, it's not a guarantee God's going to save you. It's not a guarantee. And they said that. He may. But even if he doesn't save us right now, they knew they would have a better life in the future. They knew that. Even if he doesn't save us in the manner you think that he needs to save us, he will save us. And we will not, we will not serve you or any idol. He's told us not to do it. So they didn't do it. He was so mad, so enraged. He had the furnace heated seven times the normal time. Seven times. And so much so that when, and he had him bound up, when the people went, when the people went to take him there, they were engulfed by the flames and they died. Now the three men, they, they fell into the furnace and King Nebuchadnezzar was watching them. And they said, he sees, they're not burning. And wait a second, there's not three of them, there's four of them. Who's the fourth? Remember, the Messiah of Israel is with us before, always, and forever. And they came out, and they were not a singe on their hair, not any smell on their clothing. God saved them. God saved them. Now, what I want to share with you is that you may not be asked to give your life. You may. You may. But you may not. But you will be asked to do something wrong. It's going to happen in your life. You will be confronted with that. It can come in many forms. You can have people, you could be working on the dock and people can be saying to you, and it's January 2nd, oh, by the way, all of those shipments that you do, just record them as December 31st. You know that's wrong. You, but John told me to record them. You know why he's doing it. He has ungodly principles as to why they're doing it. They're trying to cheat. That's an example. There's many examples, but I'm just telling you, you are going to be faced with that kind of an issue in your life. And look at this example to basically 
do what's right. God may not save you in the way people here think that you need to be saved. You will have all the blessings in another life, and you may be saved in this life too. So I wanted to share that with you. God bless you, and I turn it over to Beverly. Bless the Lord. Thank you, Jeff. That kind of uh, flows into what I want to share today. Shabbat Shalom. Our God is good at all times, even in the difficulty, even in a pandemic, even in gross darkness. I like that, Jeff. That was on. I like that. Let's just bow our heads. Father, we bless you for this time together around your word. Thank you for our rabbi and thank you for our elder Jeff and thank you for Reuben who's going to come for the words that you are speaking through us today. Let your people be enlightened, encouraged, determined, and go out of this place with purpose. In the name of Yeshua, amen. It's important to do that which is right, as Jeff has said. It's important to be obedient. We are living in a season of gross darkness. And now more than ever, if you name the name of Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, as Lord and Savior, we need to do what's right. And we need to be light in a gross darkness. We kind of, during our prayer time on Wednesday night, uh, prayed through scriptures of light uh, about the conditions in our world and in our congregation. So I want to talk to you today about being light in gross darkness. Gross darkness is not strange to the earth. Yeshua was born in a time of gross darkness. The nation of Israel uh, was taken over by another entity. They lived subjugated to the Roman Empire. Their religious institutions were really governed by Rome. You had a high priest, but the high priest paid off the Roman populator. Uh, the, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm saying that wrong. He paid off the headman, and they paid off the headman in charge to, to retain their power. So their religious institution was affected by the occupation of the Roman Empire. But there was a remnant in the midst. Remember, there's always a remnant. I don't care how dark it is, there, there's always a remnant. You remember Elijah complaining to God, well, you know, there's only me. God said, no, I have 7,000. You don't know, but I've got 7,000 who have not bowed their knees to Baal. We can always do right, no matter what the situation seems to dictate. We live in a time of turmoil, not just in this country, but everywhere around the world. We are living in turmoil. We are living in chaos. But as the people of God, we must. You may not want to wear a mask, but you must be light. If you're going to represent God in the earth, you must be light. You may not want a social distance, but you must be light. And that light has got to govern how you respond to gross darkness. And if I was in a regular church, I would say, amen? Talk to me, somebody. It's a black thing. Excuse me. It's a human thing. But we have to be light in the midst of gross darkness. Yeshua shows up. In the midst of gross darkness, when the people who should obey God were not obeying God, 
he shows up by the mercy of God, by the love of God. He shows up. Light comes in the midst of gross darkness. And there's a remnant to receive him. Simeon at the temple says, I've seen my Savior, now I can go rest. Anna the prophetess, I've seen salvation. There's a remnant always. I don't care how bad it looks. There's a remnant in the midst of gross darkness. And we need to be part of the remnant. We don't need to sit and complain. Paul says, don't get involved in foolish talk. Who baptized me? Who did this? Paul said, that makes no sense. When we have to be light in gross darkness, you have to focus on what God put you on the earth to do. I don't have time for conspiracy theories. I don't have time to figure it out. I need to talk to God about foolishness in the earth, about death in the earth, and cry out and say, God, we need deliverance. If you're going to be the people of God, that's what you must do. If you're going to do your assignment. Now, as people of God, we have a position, purpose, and an ability. We are made in the image and likeness of God, as it says in uh, Genesis. He put us on the earth to take care of what belongs to him. That you have a position. You are one with God. In John 17, in the church, they taught us that this was the real Lord's prayer. Jesus was praying for us. And he said then, Father, make them one as we are one. Make them one together with us. Now, if you're one with God, you got to do better than conspiracy theories. You've got to tell truth according to to the word of God. You've got to tell it with authority because you are walking in obedience to his word. If you're going to be light and gross darkness, you can't play with issues. If God said, this is what it is, and this is what we do. The scriptures talk about people who are extremely obedient to God and he blessed them. Zacharias and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna, Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. The scripture says they were obedient to Torah. They were careful about the word of God. Their hearts were for the word of God. That, that meant to me that they didn't entertain a lot of foolishness. They woke up like Job. I, I want to make sure I get it right. Lord, I, I want to make sure I please you. I want to make sure I honor you. How do I do that in every area of my life? If we are going to be light, we have to be careful about the word of God, obedience to the word of God, determine to do the word of God. The scripture said, don't be tossed by every wind of doctrine. I, you know, I, I used to tell when um, I was pastoring in New York and, and, and ministering in New York, I would, be so, I, I would tell the church, I'm tired of Christians that don't know nothing. And that's just how I would say it in the church. You need to know the word of God so you can do the word of God. You can't help anybody when you don't know anything. You can't. I'm not being mean. It's just truth. You have to be careful about it. You need to study about it. The scripture says you need to study the word of God. There were men in the Bible who could check Paul by the word. They just didn't accept what he said. They checked him by the word so that they, know, they would know that he was speaking truth. We don't know the word of God. That's why everybody can come and have a new theory about something. Oh, that sounds good. You have itching ears. Everything that sounds good, looks good, is not good and not the will of God. It is the will of God 
that you represent him in the earth and make a difference. If people come into your path, you need to be a change agent for them. They need to be able to depend on you because you have a relationship. They need to see the light of God in us. We don't have to preach great sermons, but you do have to serve. And if somebody needs prayer, you need to be able to call on the Father. You should never tell, well, you know, come to my, come to my congregation and the rabbi is going to pray for you. You need to deal with that thing when you see it. If you're going to be light. If you're going to be determined to live for God in the earth. If you're going to be like Yeshua. If you're going to be obedient to God. And then the scripture says, finally, in the fourth chapter of Philippians, Paul says to the Philippians, finally, brothers and sisters, think on these things. Think on these things. Whatever is good and pure and lovely that has a good report. Think on these things. If you're going to be light, then you have to keep darkness out of your life. Stop embracing darkness. I'm not saying not to look at truth and face it, but don't take in darkness. Deal with truth by the light of the word of God. I, I love this congregation, and, and uh, there are some men who bless me. Uh, in this congregation, like David Gonzalez, how they handled the word of God, like Ruben Ramos, how they handled the word of God, like our brother Rick Morris, how they handle and, and give up, and how they handle the word of God is life and life like to me. It helps me to see who God is. It helps me to face the things that I've got to face every day. We have gone through Hell in 2020. There is no other word for it. Cancer diagnosis. We have lost husbands, fathers, mothers, brothers, friends from COVID-19, from stroke, from severe asthma attacks from cancer. It is difficult. We need light. I don't have time for darkness. I need to see God here. We need to be desperate to be light in the midst of gross darkness because people are drowning. People are in severe pain. I was praying with a brother in New York last night who just lost his wife to pancreatic cancer. She had never been sick all the time he'd known her. And all of a sudden, and I had to stand with him as a sister in Christ to help him go through this darkness. And yet in the midst of this darkness, he gave God the glory. You got to help people who are in desperate situations see God in the midst and still say, my God is good. He is with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. Be light, everybody, in the midst of gross darkness and let the world know that our God lives. Bless you. Thank you, Beverly. I would like to file a formal complaint with my booking agent for putting me after Beverly. But no, seriously, thank you, Rabbi. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a great honor to be here, to be able to speak. Um, that was wonderful, seriously, and Jeff as well. We have a huge task ahead of us for such a small community. And uh, it's interesting because what I'm going to talk about is the Sabbath, which is one of my... Um, my passions is what brings me so much joy. And with such a huge task, actually, you can see the need for Sabbath uh, because that's a lot of weight to carry for an individual. There's a lot of darkness in the world, like uh, Beverly was saying. And the Sabbath gives us a, a way, a sort of
biblical way to deal with these things and to be able to refresh ourselves and and do the task that God has given us. So I greet you with Sabbath blessings of peace in the name of our Master Yeshua, the Messiah. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to Hashem forever and ever. My introduction to Messianic Judaism, although we hadn't called it that yet, began in the summer of 2006. It all started with Erev Shabbat, the eve of the Sabbath. My friends had invited me to their house one warm Friday evening in a sleepy neighborhood along the river. I arrived just before sunset, not sure what to expect. It's not that I didn't know what Shabbat was. I'd read about Shabbat and had been studying the Jewish roots of my Christian faith for years before with my dad, but I never really experienced the Sabbath, not until that night. I knocked on the door and stepped into a, f- a house full of warmth and light, and surprisingly, a briskness, a sense of anticipation. Excitement filled the air, mingling with the savory aroma of fresh-baked bread and spiced food. I was sat at the kitchen table, joined with my two friends, as their sisters and mother set about the house, whisking away here and there, gathering condiments and plates, and cups and cutlery, and books and all sorts of paraphernalia neatly arranged at the table. I felt nervous in a way, hearing the voice of my mother, reminding me always to be a good guest and never impose and always help when you can. But my friends reassured me it was under control. And sure enough, just as the evening deepened, their father assembled the whole family, and a hush fell through the house. You could feel it. You could feel it like the embrace of a loved one after a long separation. I can only describe it to you as Sabbath peace. I don't have time to recount every beautiful memory I have of that night, stored away in vivid detail of the candlelight, the prayers, the songs, the food, the smells, the conversations, the learning, the beauty, the feeling of connectedness and belonging. But I will tell you that it was powerful enough that almost 15 years later, I'm still practicing Erev Shabbat week in and week out with my family. Thanks. And although every Erev Shabbat is not as peaceful nowadays with four willful children running around, it remains the touchstone of our week. Resting on the Sabbath is the oldest of all religious observances. The Jewish people have observed over 182,000 consecutive Sabbaths since they crossed the Red Sea nearly 3,500 years ago. What a beautiful testament to the covenantal faithfulness of the Jewish people. But resting on the Sabbath goes beyond the heritage of Sinai. As we recite from Bereshit each week at Erev Shabbat, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Three acts of Hashem denoted the seventh day. He rested, he blessed it, and he sanctified the seventh day. When we partake in Shabbat, we testify to our belief that Hashem created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And by doing so, we experience the blessings and holiness Hashem imparted into the Sabbath at the time of creation. We draw closer to Hashem when we emulate him and rest from our labors on the seventh day, when we bless the seventh day, and when we sanctify the seventh day. And if you're a Gentile like me, see what the prophet Yeshua has to say about foreigners keeping Shabbat. The sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. I want to leave you with some beautiful words by Abraham Joshua Heschel from his work, The Sabbath, Its Meaning for the Modern Man. A prince once set into captivity and compelled to live anonymously among rude and illiterate people. 
Years passed by and he languished with longing for his royal father, for his native land. Once, one day, a secret communication reached him in which his father promised to be bring back to the palace, urging him not to unlearn his princely manner. Great was the joy of the prince, and he was eager to celebrate the day. But no one is able to celebrate alone, so he invited the people to the local tavern and ordered ample food and drinks for all of them. It was a sumptuous feast, and they rejoicing. The people, because of the drinks, and the prince in anticipation of his return to the palace. The soul cannot celebrate alone, so the body must be invited to partake in the rejoicing of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a reminder of the two worlds, this world and the world to come. It is an example of both worlds. For the Sabbath is joy, holiness, and rest. Joy and part of this world, holiness and rest are something of the world to come. To observe the seventh day does not mean merely to obey or to conform to the strictness of a divine commandment. To observe is to celebrate the creation of the world and to create the seventh day all over again. The majesty of holiness in time, a day of rest, a day of freedom, a day which is like a lord and a king over all other days, a lord and king in the commonwealth of time. My wife and I have an Arab Shabbat dinner each week, as I know many of you uh, have as well. But if there's anyone that wants to join us on Shabbat to experience the Sabbath, please let us know. And if you can host people on Arab Shabbat, I encourage you to reach out to people as well. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Ya er Adonai Panavelecha Vichunecha. Ye saw Adonai Panavelecha, Veasem Lecha Shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Bishim Yeshua Hamashiach, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, Amen. Shabbat Shalom.